Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting right now on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we're privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, as we do every week. This is the birthplace of black theatre in this country, and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You are listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Tanya Ali, and look, here on Gadigal Land, the rainbow has been well and truly omnipresent over the last little bit. Brands are going hard on their yassification. There is a hell of a lot of sponsored content in the feed from corporations telling us that who we are is A-OK, thank God. Um, you might be recovering from a big glitter-filled night yourself. If you're anything like me, though, Mardi Gras time is kind of complex, despite the widespread quote-unquote acceptance. Oddly enough, this is the time of year I feel most self-conscious of my queerness, of maybe not being queer enough or the right type of queer. Luckily, my identity crisis usually fades just about as fast as the rainbows all over the city that get scrubbed away. But the exclusion of queer and trans people of colour, particularly First Nations folk, from mainstream queer spaces across entertainment, across advocacy, academia, that's an issue all year round. This week on the show, we're joined by Wiradjuri transgender and non-binary academic Sandy O'Sullivan. Sandy's a professor of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University and ahead of their appearance at a couple of events at the Sydney Opera House next weekend, which we'll get into later, they spoke to Darren Lasagas about what drew them to academia, the complexities of queer lexicon and challenging gender binaries as anti-colonialism. Stick around for that chat. We're Darren Lasagas and joining us is Professor Sandy O'Sullivan. They teach at the School of Indigenous Studies and the Centre for Global Indigenous Futures at Macquarie University. And on the 13th of March at the Sydney Opera House, they're speaking on a panel for All About Women titled Beyond the Binary. And alongside Jinghua Kian, Amal Leota, Lou and Eve Rees, they'll be unpacking what a world might look like if all our current gendered expectations disappeared and what it might take to get there. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Before we get into the panel, you've been teaching across gender, identity, museums, the body, performance, design, and First Nations identity since 1991. We love that. I wasn't wasn't saying that in like, wow, what a long time, but it is a long time. Um, It is a long time. It it also, it goes some way to explaining why it's such a lengthy list of things that I do. 
Um, I'd love to hear about your entry into academia. What brought you into the world of teaching? Um, well, I, I left school, so I'm a Radjuri person. Um, and uh, I guess like a, a lot of um, people my age, uh, I mean, my, my mid to nearly late 50s, um, I left school at 13. So I didn't have much in the way of early education and... I had an opportunity because I was a musician and an artist to be able to go to university uh, and enter on the basis of audition rather than, you know, rather than any kind of academic knowledge. I literally couldn't write a sentence when I started university and uh, I loved it. I loved, uh, I loved doing performance, but I really loved uh, learning, you know, and I'd never gotten that as a kid. And suddenly I was at university and I was learning and then I thought, oh, well, you know, another thing that I'd like to do is to be able to talk about this process of learning. And uh, and so I started, I guess, as an academic a little bit accidentally, but yeah, it's been a bit over 30 years now. So, and it feels like it was just yesterday and a little bit of that's this renewed work that we all do you know like you don't do the same thing for 30 years and you know the work now particularly the work across gender and sexuality that's intersecting with the work that we all think about as um that first nations people think about is incredibly um it's an incredibly important time to be doing this kind of work so yeah when you talk about incredible time to be doing the work, how has that changed over the years that you've been kind of teaching it? Enormously. When we first started, when I first started um, teaching, anything that we did in the Indigenous space was always really corralled by others. You know, it was, it was what other people thought was interesting and important. Um, and it was often about the desperation. You know, it was that notion of... I guess an early idea of closing a gap instead of kind of recognising when we as First Nations people exceed the gap, you know, um, when we're doing work that is actually at the forefront, but also understanding that the gap that had been formed wasn't of our doing, you know, (laughs) and now there's just so many more of us uh, who are in universities, so many more of us that are doing that work. But that's not what's really changed. What's changed is the expectation from communities that we don't do this work that sits outside of community interest. And so community interests, of course, they're going to be around gender and sexuality because they're around everything. You know, So they're not this kind of narrowed idea of, my God, the desperation, let's make sure we have enough workers in X space. They're what everybody um, requires, which is a way, to, way for our communities to grow and engage. Yeah. Mm. I guess you're kind of speaking to this now, but I guess more specifically, anti-colonialism is a thread that exists throughout all these ideas and your work. What does it look like to teach anti-colonialism in a colonial institution? Oh, it's it's a challenge. It's a challenge to say the least. And and it's no surprise probably that the more um, people that you work with who do that colonial that anti-colonial work, 
the more that you can challenge the colonial structures of the university. But it's important to acknowledge that it exists too. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of the idea of decolonization. I think anti-colonial is the only way to do it. You've got to recognise it's there and that you're not going to dismantle the system. You actually have to um, challenge it and know that it exists and, you know, and take it on. And yeah, so it's so, so what's what's what changes about that, but also, you know, what's strong about that in working within institutions and particularly with students is is just getting them to realise that this is a, a space that is problematic and that they can um, change their work within it. You know, and and I I think I've been able to do that. Working at the Centre for Global Indigenous Futures at Macquarie has been huge in terms of doing that. You know, it's been um, amazing to work with. You know, we've got um, a bunch of incredible people um, at our institution. But we've also, you know, one of the really crucial things is that half of my department is trans. Um, and that's actually pretty enormous, but it's also absolutely makes all the sense in the world <laughs> because, you know, we're sending out a space that uh, uh, absolutely challenges. Um, we're setting out a space that, um, that says, look, there's a fundamental problem with the colonial project. And one of the ways that there is, is the colonial project of gender, which is the work that I do is a, a cross challenging that. So, mm. yeah. Well, on the colonial project of gender, I mentioned before Beyond the Binary, that's the panel you're speaking on for All About Women at the Opera House. I feel like queerness, um, including a rejection of the gender binary, is imagined before it's realized. It's something that exists beyond what is the immediate norm. Where does one begin this imagination? I, I think part of it is recognizing not everything that we do or that First Nations people do as a response to the colonial project, but it needs to understand it. And, you know, colonizers came here and decided how we had to live, um, how we were allowed to marry or, you know, and they went on to set up universities and that described who we are and, and the ways that we should be and, and they limited it. And, you know, so with a specific focus on gender, um, this idea is to challenge that, is to say, look, of course, part of that was to impose this view and these sets of ideas. And so the strategy to do it is to literally just challenge it at every pass. And so this isn't about saying no gender exists. So there are plenty of people who believe that, but that's not me particularly. And it's not even the case that I make. You know, the case that I make is that um, if you... Uh, if you set up something that is a colonial project, it's always about boxes. It's always about containers. It's always about people behaving themselves and pushing themselves into those containers, but also really crucially being pushed into those containers and not being able to get out of them. And, you know, and of course, the thing about the binary um, is that it is these two spaces that are very exclusive, you know, and so, so non-binary for non-binary people, uh, that just doesn't exist. It doesn't work. You can't thrive in it. Um, so, you know, I'm not challenging um, ideas of the binary. 
I'm suggesting that I don't belong in it. Mm. Um, you know, that as a non-binary person, as somebody who's transgender, as somebody who sits outside of that space, mm. that's not, you know, there's no discomfort in that. There's discomfort for others in it. And, you know, anti-colonial work is, <laughs> is not comfortable. Uh, it's, it's, and it's not meant to make people necessarily feel bad, but it's definitely meant to make them feel uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and they're different things. You know, it is about going, there's no, there's a comfort in a container. <laughs> let's mm. bust out of that and let's actually make something wonderful, mm. um, you know, which is the truth of people. You know, it's, it's just the truth of people. It's not, you know, something fanciful. And when I said before about, oh, look, you know, it's a lot easier now. One of the reasons is this, there's a lot more people who are identifying as um, as non-binary. They've always been non-binary, but they're talking about it and they're finding a, a language to be able to describe it. And I think that any of us who have any kind of um, position where it's possible to talk about this need to do it. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, the idea of language and lexicon surrounding gender, um, mm. as you said, it's existed, I mean, in, in its essence existed for a long time, but maybe it's changed um, and it's always in flux. Do you think we can ever reach like an all-encompassing ultimate use of language and lexicon and like what might what might that look like? I think there's, you know, I think about the the really, really interesting piece that um, J.M. Field wrote um, for uh, Indigenous X a, a few months ago. And it's a piece that kind of challenges the idea of finding one single language to talk about gender and sexuality and everything that's outside of that box, but it's also saying if it does exist, it comes from language. And of course, we've got hundreds and hundreds of languages, um, for instance, and that's just, you know, in this continent um, to, to describe. But also, there is something somewhat problematic about coming up with another container, you know, mm. uh, and, and of course, this is where lots of people on Turtle Island or that area that's, that's often called North America, um, were 30 years ago, you know, when the, the term um, uh, Two-Spirit was formed. Um, and it's a great term. It's really helpful until it isn't. You know, all of these terms are helpful until they become their own containers that don't allow um, greater complexity of language from language. So I know that's like not a really easy answer, but I think it's, I think it's part of the whole we work beyond the binary. We all work beyond binaries in our lives, whatever that is, whether it's a gender binary or anything else. That idea of having to put something into if you're not this, you're this, mm -hmm. is we know how limiting that is and how problematic it is. Um, and that's one position. And the other position is not being able to fit into either of those things. And I do mean being able to, you know, I, I do mean that forcing, that, that idea that there's a default. I mean, it's why for a lot of non-binary people we say being transgender and, and that whole idea of being assigned something quite different to who we are at birth. Um, and then, you know, having a whole process of affirmation to, to understand. Community gets that in a really big way. You know, First Nations communities understand that because those, those um, impositions, those ideas are often forced on us. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that speaks exactly to the idea of language in that it is limiting while it does represent a sense of humanity. It's never going to capture specificity and like um you know my minute like human understanding um and i guess like 
Um, it speaks to, um, you know, Jose Espar Munoz in Cruising Utopia, this idea of queerness as a horizon, queerness is something to always aspire to, but never to be fully reached. But I guess like the way I understand it, and I talk about, you know, with my peers all the time, like it's the act of reaching for that, that constitutes the queerness and the act of always pushing against it. Absolutely. And that's, it's a, it's a beautiful framing. Mm. And it's also really interesting because it presents a bit of a problem because it's often how um, settler queers will kind of construct an otherness in, for instance, First Nations people, but I think it really works for anyone, actually, um, who sits outside of that, including themselves, of course. Um, and, you know, that it can be this kind of idea of, um, of a fantasy otherness rather than a reality otherness. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everything is a fantasy otherness and a reality otherness as well. So, but I, but I think it can become romanticised. And, and, and two-spirit um, formation, that idea of it, from others, not from people who who are too spirit, but from others, often works that way. So it's this idea of the kind of secret, sacred, othered, you know, fantasy of um, brown people or fantasy of, you know, of of difference that I think we also have to challenge against. You know, mm. so it's it's th- that tension is real and it's never about it's really good to have this and it's really easy to have this or or it's or it's a problem. Um, it's it is kind of, again, the problem of language, but it's also I love the fact that we're even having those kinds of conversations at the moment because you know, we're the ones having them. Um, we're the ones who are, who are actually starting to say these are, you know, do, do we need a word? Do mm-hmm. we need, um, and words are great. People love them, um, but they're also just so problematic um, and people will default to trying to grab hold of any word that describes. And so, you know, we see it with uh, people, want, people talking about language at our, at our centre. We came up with a guide to how people um, could, talk and write about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we did it because everybody worries about it, (laughs) like trying to come up with language and trying to understand what language to use and wanting it to be fixed and an answer. And of course, there isn't an answer. The answer is often uh, every community that someone comes from. And in the context of the individual, a queer individual, a queer First Nations individual, we know that it's how people want to describe themselves. Mm. Um, and of course that's complex and Mm. specific, you know, so Mm. how do we like translate that understanding and readily tap into those ideas and concepts into the wider world? Like who's, I don't want to say responsibility because that just like implies that some people have the labor and the, and the work to be able to do this, but like, how, how does it filter out? You know, how do, how do we do that? I, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Darren. No, no. no idea. No, yeah. but I mean, I, I think, you know, I've been working on this project and it's called Saving Lives, Mapping mm. the Influence of LGBTIQ plus um, First Nations Creative Artists. And it's a mapping project to sort of understand that the way that creativity has been used to demonstrate our reality and potential as, as queer First Nations peoples. And I think in some ways it's the work that people make. It's the it's the the way that people talk about themselves. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in the way that art does that, but this is, this is the way that everybody does it, you know? And I think, I think the more that it's in the world, the more that we'll know, but the language will change. Like I refer to myself now as a non-binary trans person, but I haven't always done that. And in 20 years time, maybe I won't, 
Maybe we'll have a different language. And that's not a mistake. You know, this idea that you must have the right language or it's a mistake or, oh, didn't you used to say that? I mean, this is part of the nonsense of the colonial project is to say you're fixed for all time, even though actually we just came in and messed everything up. You're, you're fixed for all time now. And what you need to do is to think about yourself this way and then you'll be successful and you'll move forward. And, you'll, and I think we can't do that in this way either you know so so i think the answer is unfortunately it can't or not unfortunately it it actually just can't happen because it's not mm. that helpful mm. and and i think that obviously part of the problem with that is trying to corral and bring people together into one space and it's one of the reasons that i use queer mm. you know uh, even if it's a word that people might feel uncomfortable some people might feel uncomfortable with it's still a, it's a catch-all for gender and sexuality and it kind of, in some ways that can be problematic because it, it brings the two together in ways that aren't necessarily there, but, but it also does that for people who want it, you know, so it's, so it's sort of, it's helpful, but it also, as you said, does that amazingly good work of um, disrupting and, and saying this is actually about this not being... Um, a, a cis space it's not being mm. a head space it's not being you know and I, I think that there are tends to a conservatism you know and there's this idea that that conservatism is an approach that people take as they get older and this idea that and that's about the idea of things settling you know uh, so um you know, joke that it's the word settler and mm. settled are, that are sat there together. And it's that idea of coming to an agreement about something, but who's agreeing? You know, so, and it doesn't matter if we don't, don't agree. It's not the point of it. And I think that's, that's an in, important moment too. And I, I loved the fact that, um, you know, the Beyond the Binary um, session that we're doing is so focused on these disruptions you know, it's focused on, I mean, none of us are the same people as one another, you know, it is, and I don't mean it's diverse in the capital D way, <laughs> I don't mean, <laughs> you know, because that can be, a, you know, a nonsense too when you've only got, you know, four people basically, but it's, but what it's doing is, is thinking around those disruptions, you know, it's, um, and we're all thinking around that space as well. And it's not disrupting the all about women because, um, women are amazing. Uh, but, you know, what will often happen is that for people who are outside of the binary, people will be forced or corralled or thought of within those contexts. And so part of it's about proposing that there are, you know, there's nothing lost in thinking uh, outside of the binary as, as well within that space. I want to pivot a little bit to your work in performance. What are the ways that you know, all these ideas that we've been talking about for the past uh, few minutes intersect with your ideas of performance? Oh, um, well, a, a really, really important, um, you know, Edelman talked about, um, amazing um, black activists talked about um, the idea of, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I know that that can be overplayed. I know it can be a bit trite. Um, but that's not what Edelman was talking about at the time that she proposed it. I mean, this was genuinely someone who was saying there are no black teachers that people can look to. There are not people who are working within these spaces and black kids can't see that. 
um, and they can't see them and they can't imagine their world. And, you know, so the so performance is particularly interesting because it's the body, you know. <laughs> like you're, it's, it's rare that you see a performance that doesn't somehow include um, someone's body and, 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 and bodies are our essence. It's what we have. Um, you know, it's not all that we are, but it is something that we have. And so there is a complexity that gets made really easy by understanding and being able to see bodies and seeing yourself represented. I mean, I've been working on this project that's a part of this bigger project that I'm doing, and it's called Challenging Symbolic Annihilation. Um, boom, boom. <laughs> At the moment, that's what it's called. So symbolic annihilation is that idea, again, that you just never see yourself, you know. So the idea of annihilation, we know that. Um, but symbolic annihilation is that idea that um, that it, you, you are just not present. You know, you grow up looking at TV and you don't see anyone who looks like you. You don't see anyone who acts like you or sounds like you um, or has the same life that you've had. Now, you don't need to see, you know, a million people like that, but it's amazing how many people have never seen even one person. Um, and that's changing. You know, it really is. I mean, it's exponentially changing, which is amazing. Um, and it's wonderful. It's why, you know, um, it's so it's such a great time to be alive and such a problematic time too because, you know, in those changes, who's making those choices? Um, so what performance does is it gives... Uh, people, young and old, I think, um, but we often focus on young people because they are you know, often within families that don't necessarily understand those spaces of difference, you know. And, I mean, you grow up, you know, as an Aboriginal person, I grew up in a family that was Aboriginal. Nobody had to tell me how to be an Aboriginal person, but being queer was something quite different. And, you know, not everyone in the family was queer. Actually, I've got a few, but, you know, not everyone was. You know, so understanding that is quite different mm -hmm. and, uh, and understanding the tension between these two othernesses that you don't feel as an individual, but other people do feel. Um, and so there is this really, you know, big complexity around it. And performance gives you a, a little bit of playground. You know, that's what performances do anyway. You know, that's it's kind of the wonders of, of um, looking at streaming services and being, you know, absolutely engrossed in them across the pandemic was to have this opportunity to go oh yeah I can um, I can't travel anywhere I can't go anywhere but look <laughs> I'm going here I'm seeing this and so I do think it's incredibly important mm -hmm. um, for people to form their own sense of self through seeing others and that's just one of those ways that you can see people who are outside of your smaller um, zone uh, of existence mm -hmm. um, there is one question that we ask all our guests um, who come through on Race Matters, um, and that's Sandy. When did you realise there was power in your race? Oh, um, that's really hard. I'm sure everybody uh, has trouble. Maybe people don't have trouble answering this, but I'm going to. I, I think it was, I think it happened a long time ago and it happened really recently. You know, I think this idea of race you know I grew up at a time when people were really against talking about race and they wanted to talk about ethnicity and they wanted to talk about these ideas 
again, being separated out, you know, and, oh, ethnicity is this and race is this. And, you know, coming to the realisation that this is also part of the colonial project to kind of separate it out and maintain that separation is a part of it. Um, and I think realising that that idea of the gap, you know, um, the closing the gap process, even though it's only, you know, a decade old as, a, as an idea, um, it, a bit more than that, it's the the function of it was to say you're not up to scratch, you know, and for a lot of reasons, not our of our own making, but it was that idea. And so, as I said before, that notion of being able to exceed the gap, but also that we always have, you know, that the gap is not made by us um, and the gap is not a part of our uh, conjuring, um, but the exceeding the, the gap or, or actually pretending, I mean, knowing that it doesn't exist, but pretending that it doesn't exist in the broader landscape that we have to live in is a part of that. You know, again, um, I think it's being a member of a centre that looks at the future, but also does it knowing that we're in the now, you know, so not some fantasy of making things better later, but the idea of going, right, from today onwards, um, things change every day. Mm. <laughs> so, so I think it's the power of working with other people who, um, who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, as I do, and working with other people too from around the world to just understand um, the power of um, of who we are and that allies can come on board, but we're the ones that decide um, our futures. So, yeah. Mm. Sandy O'Sullivan on when they realised there was power in their race. And, yes, you can catch Sandy O'Sullivan at a couple of different events happening as part of All About Women at Sydney Opera House next Sunday, March 13. Uh, the first is Beyond the Binary. You would have heard Sandy and Darren chatting about that panel a little bit. Uh, Sandy will be in conversation with Jinghua Kwan, uh, Amazon Liao and Eve Rees. Hot tip, we hear they're also going to be speaking uh, at another event as part of Queer Stories later that evening. For both of these events, IRL tickets appear to be sold out, but live stream tickets are still available and you can head to sydneyoperahouse.com for all of the details and also to buy tickets and look, uh, maybe search around and see if you can find an in real life ticket if you are keen to head along physically as well. We'll also pop the link up over on our programs page, fbiradio.com forward slash programs. Click through to Race Matters and it's up for you there. And that's all for Race Matters this week. Uh, big thank you to our guest, Sandy O'Sullivan, who chatted to Darren Lasagas for today's show, fbiradio.com forward slash Race Matters. Uh, you can also head to Sydney Opera house.com to find some more information about the rest of the program all about women uh thank you so much for tuning in we will catch you next week race matters 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 race matters